everybody. Welcome to Rock and Roll Shinsu Chu, episode number 63. My name is Gabe Estel. I'm here with my co-hosts, Dennis Levi Leach and Jonathan Getz. How's it going, guys? Awesome. Great. Good. Good. That's what I like to hear. All right. Um, well, thanks for hanging with us, everybody. Uh, want to remind everybody, um, visit rockchu.com for all your rock and roll Shinsu Chu needs. Tonight, we're going to be t- doing the field guide to 1981. And 1981 was a year that split us in two. In baseball, we had a midseason strike, quite literally split the midseason into two halves, uh, which was a first, resulting in playoff and non-playoff teams that defied logic. And it would take a future Hall of Fame third baseman to break up the monopoly starting and relief pitchers had on sports page headlines and postseason awards. But when it all shook out, two familiar foes would meet in the World Series for the third time in five years. Popular music was also split in two. Sure, you had traditional rock of veteran acts like the Rolling Stones, Foreigner, and REO Speedwagon. Domi- those acts dominated the Billboard charts. But underneath this comfort of familiar FM hits was a music scene predominantly split in two momentum-gaining genres that would define the decade, metal and new wave. Ozzy Osbourne would release his second post-Black Sabbath album, Diary of a Madman, containing both guitar gods shredding and power ballads that have influenced the decade to come. Meanwhile, the Human League's dare top charts across the globe, firmly establishing new wave as a definitive genre in popular music. And that takes us to the year in music, 1981, which I think is um, a pretty good year. You know, growing up, uh, well, not growing up, but like in high school and early part of college, you know, you were to ask me, I would think, oh, well, this is when popular music started to go downhill. And, uh, you know, fast forward 20 years later, and maybe maybe it's the distance between 2016 and 1981, uh, which is most of my life. Um, but it uh, I, I think it's a pretty good time for for music. I really do still. Um, you know, maybe not the same time that it was in the 60s and 70s, but uh, there's a lot of interesting things happening in 1981. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, you know these the, these two genres of metal, new wave, really taking hold and mm-hmm. evolving. The seventies um, with rock, it was. Um, I'm not going to say it was it was resting on its laurels, but it was definitely um, you know aside from Prague and you know some of the things, uh, it was it was hitting a formula that was very successful. And sure. and then uh, right around the late seventies and early eighties. Uh, it started to be turned on its ear a little bit, and yeah. FM radio, as a result, changed quite a bit for for the better or for the worse. Uh, yeah. But regardless, change is nice, and it prevents stagnation, which is not so nice in rock. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I also, you know, like you had mentioned, um, you know, both of those genres were, you know, they're. They predate 1981. You know, they Definitely. occurred in they they both they were born in the 70s, really. Yep. Um, but you know, this is when they really started to take you know the became become you know pop really popular genres uh, would be you know in the early 80s, definitely. Oh yeah, and it would from there it would evolve even more <laughs> for better yeah, or for worse. Right. For better uh, or worse, both metal and, and new wave would you know they they would have its. It's kind of crap backs, but um, mostly, you know, there's there was a lot of a lot of uh, strong bands uh, releasing stuff at the mm-hmm. time that I, had, admittedly, I hadn't heard of until I started researching for this episode. 
Yeah, yeah. Knew it was kind of like a like punk's neon cousin. You know what I mean? Like it was. Uh, it was. It was. It's. It's odd that like a lot of the punk bands kind of went in that direction as as well. And artists that were associated with punk, you know, kind of. Uh, that's the genre where they found themselves, you know, or, or maybe it just occurred naturally. Their music progressed in a new wave. It was like you wanted, like, they wanted to be punk, but, like, they wanted to just, like, stand around and smoke cigarettes, too. Right. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It was like they didn't have the full-on energy to be, like, raging <laughs> punk. Yeah. Just so they had, to, like, take, they had to, like, create their own scene and create their own soundtrack to that scene. Yeah, they found a genre that was more commercially viable too, you know, as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, so good stuff um, in 1981. Good stuff happening uh, still. Uh, a lot of veteran acts, as we mentioned, um, released records that year. And do you guys know the, without looking, the uh, the number one selling album of 1981? There is a Central Illinois connection. Oh. I did not. I did look. No, I don't. Uh. Was it Aria? High Infidelity. High Infidelity, yeah. High Infidelity, there you go. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Aria, man, they could, uh, those are the, they, they kind of, they ruled 1981, man, at least on the charts. Yeah, so, unfortunately, uh, that was well, that was Gary Richrath's last record with them, unfortunately. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, he was always the best thing about them musically I, I thought you know yeah. Oh, yeah. he could he could he could play um and i mean they knew obviously how to pin a power power pop song yeah. uh i like tough guys from high infidelity personally <laughs> it's my favorite tune on that oh, one of my favorite aria songs the bass player sings the back on the road again oh bruce all yeah 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 um, I didn't realize that REO got album of the year that year, huh? Or well, or well, some, highest, well, high, highest they, selling, yeah, yeah, highest selling record, yeah, yeah. that year. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, you know, a, a lot of veteran acts. You know, nineteen eighty one, new decade, kind of trying to find their footing, sort of. You know, like maybe they didn't necessarily know how to adjust to the new decade. You know, with more synthesizers. Like I'm thinking of a band like Thin Lizzy. You know, a band that was like going really strong um, in the late '70s had a lot of just great output, and then when the '80s hit, you know, um, it seemed like they were a little lost. You know, like didn't quite know how to navigate the new terrain that yeah, well. Yeah, a lot of bands couldn't change their sound or right. adapt their sound to it for sure. Yeah, and it's sad that they had to. You know, um, I, I would assume you know there, there was record company pressure to. to uh, adapt your sound you know that was sales were king then so uh so yeah but thin lizzie's the one that comes to mind because i was listening to renegades today uh just trying to catch up on it because it's not you know i mean it's not it's not one of their classic records really no. um yeah. and uh uh yeah it, it, it feels like they're they're kind of just trying to make this work you know like this is this is 1981 it's not 1976 anymore like you know there's Feels like they're trying to find re- regain their footing, you know. Sure, yeah, but uh, at the same time, it was interesting. Gabe, you had suggested to listen to that uh, that Genesis album and to hear them starting Have to transition. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean that's a and that's a good segue transition for here. Um, talk about some of our favorite songs from that year. Um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll start with with I'll I'll go go with uh, an a, a song from Abacab. Um, 
you know, Genesis at this point, and we've talked about this on the podcast, um, you know, the the um, predecessor to Abacab was Duke, which was really like probably Gen- Genesis, you know, boldest left turn thus far. And then they really even kind of took it a little bit further with Abacab. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, we weren't too far in the 80s yet in 1981. So they hadn't, like, in my opinion, like, you can heal, still hear traces of their prog roots on Abacab. It's, it's, it's not as pronounced as it, as it was just a few albums prior. But, like, it's still, like, there's a hint of it still there. Um, and one of my favorite... Um, songs on that album is the closer um, called another record. And uh, you know, I gosh, I've really, I've really become a big Genesis fan over the last few years. And even the 80s stuff that I thought sucked in college, I, aside from invisible touch, I actually kind of like all of it now. Um, And I really, I like Abacab a lot. And um, I, I look at this, if you look at the lyrics of this song, you know, it's kind of about, changing you know it's about like an old rock and roller with nowhere to go and from what i've read from and what i've read and watched from interviews during that era um you know phil collins was going through a lot of personal things like a divorce and all of that you know he kind of channeled into his music you know it wasn't he couldn't really write about you know like all the stuff gabriel was writing about like you know epic battles in the forest and stuff like that, you know, I mean, he hadn't taken enough acid, right? I guess not. You know, he was right. I'm going through a divorce. Um, (laughs) These lyrics need to be a little more personal, right? Hobbits aren't going to cure my divorce or make my album. (laughs) Um, But anyway, you know, he had said in an interview once that at the end of the seventies, he had heard, I don't know if he had read like a, a review or something. And the critic was calling, a lot of bands that were prog like dinosaurs at the end of the seventies and Genesis was mentioned in the article and he was like, Oh shit. You know, I never knew they were talking about us. Hmm. Uh, you know, when they said that, um, he didn't mention any of the other bands by name, but I can, we can assume, you know, they're talking about like ELP and Jethro Tull and, you know, some others, Uriah Heep, you know, I don't know, Floyd maybe even, but you know, they were still doing pretty, pretty innovative things. Um, so I like that. I like this song. Um, it's got some really crazy drumming in it. Um, you know, he was, I assume starting to experiment with the electric drums a little bit. Um, and I, and I think Chester Thompson probably plays some drums on it too. Uh, I'm not sure of the drummer on this song, but the drumming in it's pretty crazy. And, uh, I like the fact that it's kind of about a washed up rocker because it, it seems like, uh, you know, that's what Collins sort of he felt like he was at the end of the decade and maybe maybe that helps spur some of Genesis reinvention. I don't know. Just my theory. So I really like I don't know if you guys got a chance to listen to that song, but I, I, yeah. I really like that tune. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely. Another re- another record off Abacab. Check that one out. Yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah, and then you know my other two, I guess we'll just go one at a time. Yeah, or go for just, it. Yeah. Um 1981, um, Ozzy released, as we mentioned in the introduction, his second solo album, um, Diary of a Madman, which despite, from what I read, it being rushed, I think is a great record. I remember I got it on vinyl when I was like in eighth grade or ninth grade. Uh, shout out to Jeff Janoni if you're listening. I, I went up to 
I went up to his place with Josh, and uh, you know he was, he was just throwing out all these records. So I got I got Ozzy, I got Blizzard of Oz, Diary of a Madman, and Bark at the Moon. I got I got pretty much just about every Kiss record. I got Priest. Um, so a few others. It's a really good load. Nice, I took, I took nice home, I took home like, up. I took home like, like 70 records that yeah. day. And, um, you know, Diary of a Madman, I, I was familiar with the song, You Can't Kill Rock and Roll, because I'd heard it on the radio a few times. It was one of the singles from the record. Um, and the thing I really like, love about that song is, um, I think it really, Ozzy articulates the themes of kind of like, youthful rebellion and alienation and just sort of anti-establishment feelings that the youth have, you know, Ozzy's always be the, like, you know, the kid from Birmingham with a chip on his shoulder. And that really comes out and you can't kill rock and roll, you know, those just like those kind of anti-authority messages. Um, that's what I always think of with Ozzy. You heard that in a lot of Sabbath songs as well. Um, dude, and, that, uh, that cut was, you know, it's seven minutes and it goes, it's up and down yeah. and it's like, you know, premiere power ballad to begin. And then it really like kicks into gear and then it goes it back does. to power ballad and then Randy yeah. does his thing. And it's, it's yeah. uh, impressive. The dichotomy there. It is. Yeah, it is. So I, I like it for those reasons too. As I think it's a really good piece of music um, as well. And finally for me, um, gosh, this, you know, this is my coming from my favorite Van Halen record. Fair warning. Um, when push comes to, push comes to shove, uh, fair warning is, and I mean this relatively speaking compared to other Van Halen albums. I think it's Van Halen's probably moodiest record. Oh, I agree. Yeah. It's you know, the I, darkest. Yeah, you know, when we say dark, it's not like it's a Sabbath album or anything. No, it's, or, we're not. It's not. God. Yeah, but for <laughs> them, you know, relatively speaking, it it is darker and it is moodier. Um, and I think that. It was kind of taking a chance, too, because in 1981, Halen's really starting to blow up. You know what I mean? Like, they're, I mean, they're, they're arena superstars by 1981. And they released Fair Warning, which, you know, while it had Unchained as a single, doesn't really have any other singles on mean it. Mean Streets, Streets is on there. Mean, mean Streets is a single, too, but, like, I don't... Those like are the Street, only two. Right. Yeah. And you don't hear Mean Streets on the radio a lot now. You know yeah. what I mean? It's not like... You know, one uh, of the seven or eight Van Halen songs that they play on the yeah. radio all the time. Um, but Push Comes to Shove for me, I really like because, like, there's like an R&B influence on it, you know? The bass I mean, on it, yeah. It's funky. Yeah, Michael Anthony is just, just laying they, down just nasty bass, man. They, um, both, they both did. The yeah. Michael Anthony and Eddie on that record and that song in particular – they're they're messing with styles and licks and riffs that they never really ever tried to do again. Yeah. Which uh, which I mean, I guess it didn't have it only had the two singles per se. So maybe they were like, oh, you know, it didn't sell well. So, but it, it I did. I think yeah. it's one of their more interesting listens. That record. It's my favorite Van Halen record for a lot of the reasons you just mentioned. I mean, I uh, like I said, it was a chance. You know, when they were they were they were huge in 1981 and like only getting bigger. And to release that record that, you know, kind of threw everybody up for a little bit of a loop, I think, was a cool move. Um, and it showed that despite being popular, they could kind of do what they wanted to still. Um, and also, like, I love that the album's got it's got like a loose feel to it. You know what I mean? Like it even though you think of Van Halen as being really polished and a lot of their stuff is and Eddie was kind of a studio whiz. It's got kind of a jam session feel to it. You know, a lot of parts of the record. Do. It does. Yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, I really like that. So those three for me are my uh, three of my favorite songs from 1981. Right on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought thought that those were all pretty, pretty well representative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Levi, you want to go next? Sure. Yeah. I. uh, My first song is by a guy who dropped an album in 1981 that. You know, you could have told me it was the biggest selling album of 1981. I probably would have believed you. Yeah. But that that's Billy Squire's Don't Say No. And yeah. um, it, he was just like sent down from heaven to play in arenas. Oh, yeah. Like, I, like, like, he, like his music, I think, only translates to arenas. Like, I don't know if I could necessarily like listen to a whole billy squire show and picture it in like a small theater <laughs> but if uh to go see him now he wouldn't be playing in a <laughs> right <laughs> right <laughs> yeah the, the <laughs> one of the last pretty, times i yeah. saw him he was playing with ringo Starr's all-star band i yeah. was like huh he, oh he's a classic yeah. he's, he's a classic guy to play in that yeah he, and, and, and prior to you mentioning this album levi i um i didn't know it came out in 1981 you know i mean i thought it was later in the 80s yeah I would append it yeah. for like eighty four or eighty five. Go ahead though, I'm no, sorry. Yeah, well, and yeah, he uh he you know, it's one year into the new decade and he kicks it off with this record that had four huge singles. Um yep. the one I love that I'm gonna highlight here is Lonely as the Night. And then in, in the Dark, uh My Kind of Lover and uh The Stroke were all Stroke, man. Yeah, you can't so, like I said, that music, though, is just geared to be heard, it seems like, in in that just powerful arena setting where, I don't know, if you've never, you've never been there, it's, it's a totally different concert experience when you're surrounded by, like, 60,000 crazy people. And so... The well, and it was lonely- produced by uh, Reinhold Mack, who, I mean, he was doing stuff for the Stones and T-Rex and ELO, Deep Purple, Queen. What? I mean, he knew that big sound. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It, it's just it, it was the culmination of the right talent and the right producer and the right time, you know, yeah. and uh, it lonely in this the night. It's just epic. It's got epic guitar riffs. It's got it's just a, a lot of his lyrics and songs are tongue in cheek. And it, yeah. he, he was just perfectly translated to that early 80s arena setting. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was my first one. And then um. My second song is one of the best wedding jam songs to ever hit a wedding dance floor, and that is She's a Bad Mamma Jamma by Carl Carlton. <laughs> and yes, I said that right. There really is someone called Carl Carlton. What's the record there. from that year that that came off of? It's self-titled. Not, it's self-titled. Okay. It, it, is it, or was it just a single? Because I, uh, I couldn't find the LP. I, I believe it's self-titled, and he's shirtless with a nice, fresh Jerry curl. <laughs> Nice. Like if you if you look up his discography, that's how you can tell. And um, yeah, it's just one of the best funkiest jams ever. And that song's been sampled so many times by different hip hop guys. And actually, hold you, you said sampled. Billy Squire happens to be like one of the most sampled artists of all time, as well. Yeah, yeah. isn't yeah. that weird? Yeah, yeah, like you a ninety nine problems even. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, the stroke, man. The stroke. The stroke's a, a hip hop blueprint. <laughs> but yeah, she's a bad man with Jama is just a great funky song that I've always liked. And um, written by Leon Haywood, Haywood. Who, who just died yeah. in April. Uh, he's a keyboardist yeah. for Sam Cooke. 
Yeah, that guy was in, he he was he had his hands in a lot of projects. Uh, my third and last song from that year is by a band who, dare I say, maybe the most underrated metal band of the 1980s, and that band is YNT, which stands for Yesterday and Today. And this is their first album after shortening that name from Yesterday and Today to just Y&T. And it's called Earthshaker. And uh, it's just a great blend of straight-ahead, like, early 80s hard rock and some ballads. And it's all, you know, the glue holding it all together would be the leader of the band, and that's Dave Minichetti, who has a glorious perm curl hair. (laughs) If you you ever get a chance to see Dave. And, uh... It's my my song I'm highlighting off there is called uh, "Dirty Girl," which sounds really you know totally 80s, but <laughs> the title wise. But um, they yeah everybody they, every, about five years later, uh, everybody with Aquanet would take that theme and run with it. <laughs> right? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The uh, the playing and the singing on it are great. Um, you know it. It's got, you know, there's songs on there that maybe aren't the, the they reflect a little corny because that's the whole thing. It seems like when going back and listening to older music, there's always going to be some parts of it that you're going to say, hey, that's kind of corny. But you just have to roll with it and realize that was the way it was. then. You know what right. I mean? When right. evaluating music from different decades. And so oh. in, in diving into this album, it got me kind of into Y&T and uh I just think they were really underrated in the fact that I, I can't think of another guy in the eighties besides David Menachetti that could sing that well, almost, almost Sammy Hagar in his vocal capabilities, like very just straight ahead killer rock vocals, but the guy could also rip off solos too. And so I just, yeah, I, I think everybody should go listen to Earthshaker by Y and T. The whole album is, is, is good stuff. That was a good move uh, to change the name to Y&T because that looks a lot cooler on concert swag. You know, yeah, like because right, Y&T can be a big logo, but yesterday and yeah. today is a little frilly. And yeah, Y&T, it's big okay. font. You can just fit it across the whole T-shirt. You right. Know? Yeah. 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 I agree. More badass. Well, and they later ended up having a, like a, a, a logo mascot. In, in trying to keep up with the 80s metal bands, you had to have a mascot, whether it was like Eddie from Iron Maiden or whatever. And so... Whatever that thing from Megadeth's called. I always forget yeah, its yeah, name. Yeah. Anyway. The, uh, <laughs> the, the one for Y&T, they chose like a robot who looks like a knight in, in armor or something. <laughs> it, it's on the cover of an album called In Rock We Trust. Yeah. So, yeah, it could kick look- the shit out of the, the knight that's on the cover of Return to Forever's album. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Romantic Warrior, right? Which yeah. I like that album a lot, too. No, absolutely. Yeah. Killer yeah. Yeah. We're, just, we're just talking about knights here. That knight, <laughs> that knight would slowly seduce you while the Y&T the Y and T night would just chop off your head, and then crush a, and then crush a Budweiser can. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> okay, John. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna highlight a few songs from a few albums that I had never listened to before researching. Uh, 1981. Uh, granted, you know I've listened to lots of stuff, whether it be Petty or what have you, from from 81 in the past, but. Um, one of the first things that got me was the uh, the fir- uh, the intro song from Grace Jones' album Night Clubbing, 
uh, walking in the rain. I was like, whoa, you know, this is, it's like this um, uh, synth pop electro and dub all, all mixed together. Like Sly and Robbie play on the album. And, um, but it's like, you know, you're, you're feeling Bowie at times and reggae at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, the album covers, it's like totally striking. Uh, it's this kind of yeah. painted portrait of her. It's, it's a painted over photo and it's like real angular and androgynous. And it like makes you, it's like the coolest, um, photo of somebody smoking a, with a cigarette in their mouth. <laughs> I was yeah. a kid. I was so scared of Grace Jones. Dude, I thought she was gonna like crush me. What a badass! I mean, yeah, come yeah. on. I mean, yeah. So she was a you know model in the seventies and whatever, and did like a bunch of disco stuff. But then like did this career change in in the early eighties and and uh, walking in the rain and pull up to the bumpers. The second song on there and pull up to the bumpers like whoa innuendo. <laughs> right. <laughs> pull up to my stretch black limousine. Yeah. She's Push it in between. Um, <laughs> uh, and then, um, so she wrote like half the songs on there. And then Sting uh, wrote Demolition Man for the album, which they ended up putting, which the police ended up putting on their own album right. that right. year. Um, and on Ghost in the Machine. Um, but yeah, if you haven't, if you haven't listened to Nightclubbing in a while, I highly suggest it. Uh, the title track, Nightclubbing, is the Bowie Iggy Pop song that was on Iggy Pop's solo record. Uh, so mm. there's like half covers on there and half uh um originals um uh orchestral maneuvers in the dark uh was another band i hadn't really listened to before I'd, i was familiar with some of their songs there's uh the, the big single off of their souvenir um joan of arc um made made of orleans uh but joan of arc like really blew me away uh it's definitely this uh synth pop uh, a lot a lot of mellotron in there uh interestingly interestingly enough uh pitchfork had a review that said uh uh it's a bridge between synth pops more bleak industrial beginnings and the shimmer and shine of ambitious new pop and it's definitely really moody uh the album by the way architecture and morality if i didn't say that uh and there's like a deluxe version on itunes uh with uh like six or seven other tracks uh but Man, yeah, it's it's totally moody, and and at first, you know, almost didn't know what to think of it, and but I just kept going back for it because it's so uh, there's so much depth there, it's so so much texture, and um, yeah, a lot of fun. Uh, lastly, the uh, television personalities. Had you guys ever heard of television personalities? I hadn't. No, I hadn't. Yeah, no. no. Yeah. So um, uh, it's it's a band by a, a guy named Dan Tracy, uh, British. Uh, British dude bloke, uh, and uh, this this is their debut debut album came out in eighty one. He had some project going in the late seventies, and eventually released this album with a lot of songs he had been releasing as singles uh, on this album called and it's called and don't the kids just love it. Um, uh, few great tracks on there: Jeffrey Ingram, Parties in Chelsea. But I really enjoyed uh, I know where Sid Barrett lives uh, is the name of the song. <laughs> And it's uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, the, the the band, they, it, it's technically kind of post punk, but it's also pre punk. It reminds me of the early Who stuff, you know, like mm-hmm. almost the high numbers yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so that's uh, that's really fascinating to hear those two dichotomies. 
And uh, the cover's interesting. It has uh, Twiggy and the dude from The Avengers, uh, an actor from The uh, the Avengers, uh, yeah, British, the British Avengers. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Um, supposedly they were Kurt Cobain's favorite band, but I'm sure a lot of obscure bands claim that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, so Dan Tracy's interesting, though. He's actually been to prison four times. And he once he was in prison from like ninety eight to two thousand and four for uh, theft, be, so that he could like feed his drug addiction. And he, people thought he was dead. He got out, and all of a sudden there was this newfound respect for television personalities. They actually released albums throughout the eighties and early nineties, and have since released albums uh, since he got out of jail. Uh-huh. So in the eighties, I guess supposedly they went on tour with David Gilmore, uh, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were dropped from the tour after they actually revealed the address for where Sid Barrett lives. <laughs> they, oh, for where wow. he was living? Yes, yes. They they uh, actually it was gave like it. with his mom, I think. Uh, they, he was they actually gave the mom. address. Yeah. Um, so oh, uh, the the most haunting Sid Barrett photo is. Have you guys ever seen it? The one where it's the photo of him when he came into the studio sessions for. Uh, Wish you were here. Yeah. And they were like working on Shine On You Crazy Diamond. And a guy comes in, and at first people thought he was like the janitor. Mm-hmm. People didn't realize who he was. He's overweight, his head is shaved. And you can, but you can look and see in his face and his eyes, and you can tell it's Sid Barrett. And I guess when when the oh, guys, yeah. when, when some of the guys in the band realized it was him, like they, like it, it, it tore him up. Sure, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I just think that's so hauntingly crazy that that he happened to show up there then for that. Yeah. Oh wow, yeah. Looks like yeah. Looks like looks like like a I don't know. He looks like he could have came off the set as an extra for one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I, I was about to say Kurt's in Apocalypse Now, but I don't think he's like quite that menacing. It's you're right, it's more uh it's more mental asylum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Anyway, yeah, uh, I, but I, I recommend te- the television personalities. It's the um, uh, th- that particular cut. Uh, I know where Sid Barrett lives. It's it's a very cute, cute song, very heartfelt. Cool. And then they later revealed his address. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't lying. No, right? No, they they really right. did know. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um. Oh, 81 right. in baseball. Yeah, switch it up to baseball here. Um, uh, and we'll be talking a lot more about music in 1981 uh, uh, when online, on social media, when we release this episode, too. Um, so share some of your favorite selections, please. Um, baseball in 1981, as I mentioned, split into halves. Um, and uh, because that was a strike season, but they were able to salvage the season. Uh, unlike, you know, the strike that we lived through in 94, where they just called the, called it off in August. Uh, this one, actually, they salvaged it after uh, about a 50-game recess, 50-day uh, recess or so. Um, so why don't we divide it into halves for the American League and the National League, and then I'll take the playoffs and the series. So, uh, Jonathan, what was going on in the American League in 1981? Sure, yeah. Um, so, well, first of all, when I was – I do you guys remember that – I didn't remember that there was. A, of course, I was I one at the time, but yeah, um, I, but I learned like, a lot. I just, in my, uh, 
you know, we, we gained this knowledge as we're 8 and 9 and 10 years old, and yeah. I had never picked up on the idea that there was a strike. And I had to see how they did the playoffs. I had yeah, uh, I had no idea. I had to kind of read that. I was like, what? They they did what? Um, and uh, I guess you, you'll, you'll probably go over that for the, for the playoff section, exactly yeah. how they did that. Yeah. But, well, in 1981, one thing I noticed, too, you know, I was looking at some rosters. Um. A lot of the guys that the three of us grew up watching in the late 80s, um, early 90s, a lot of those guys were kind of just starting their career in 81. Either they were, you know, rookies or in the younger, in the very early stages of their career. So, you know, I was looking through some of these lineups and it was a lot of holdover guys from, you know, who were stars in the in the 70s. Maybe, maybe a few people who were playing in the late 60s, too, you know, so that kind of. Uh, I had to I had to look up some players when I was looking at rosters, you know. Sure, yeah. Um, Ryan, Ryan Sandberg and Cal Ripken both made their debuts that, that yeah. year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was uh, an ominous start for the Red Sox uh, that year as they they lost Carlton Fisk because they uh, like sent him his a contract a couple days too late, uh-huh. and so he so became, became a free, a free agent, agent. and wow. the White Sox. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, in. right. And snagged him. Turns out in April when uh, Fisk returns to Fenway Park in a White Sox uniform, he hits a three-run home run in his first game that uh, helps clinch the uh, clinch that game for the White Sox. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, the relief pitcher Raleigh Finkers won the MVP that year. Uh, yeah. Pretty remarkable. And it's, it's um, you know, you have to take these stats – with the grain of salt because it, it's they only played what like 111 games or something that year yeah yeah right yeah um raleigh fingers he went six and three he was a relief pitcher uh a relief pitcher won the mvp six and three with a 1.04 era and 28 saves um so i mean pretty pretty solid uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, but it's it's kind of weird to see those numbers and think, oh, that was your MVP. That's an MVP season, right? Interesting. Right. Yeah. Um, also won the Cy Young Award that year, so won that won the Cy and the MVP. Um, uh, the Royals, uh, they had the tenth best overall record in the AL, uh, but yeah. thanks to these rules, they won this their second half division. Uh, so they had the best record of just the second half of the season. And so they got to go to the playoffs, even though they had the 10th best record, overall record in the AL, but the overall record didn't factor into the playoffs at all. Uh, combining the first half pre-strike and post-strike. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, remarkable to think about. Uh, the, the Yankees, I mean, who would eventually make it into the world series. They just had the fourth best record in their division. Um, yeah. Granted, there were just a couple well, t- tied for the third best, but um, yeah, uh, there were a couple of games behind. Uh, another weird thing about that about that season is that a lot there's a huge difference between the amount of games some of the teams played. Like some teams played like six or seven more games than another team. Yeah. Um, it wasn't the most um, I don't know democratic season, I guess. Oh, really, God, no. or uh, um, yeah, you know, it was this season was kind of rife with rife with controversy, you know, for all those uh, yeah for the for those reasons, you know. Yeah, and and the in the Royal, it was proven that the Royals didn't belong in the playoffs because they scored just two runs uh, against yeah. the A's when they were swept in that in that first round. Um, right. And then lastly, about the AL, uh, the aforementioned AL champion Yankees, 
Their team payroll that year, six point six million for the team. Wow. Yeah. In twenty sixteen, it's north of two hundred and twenty million. <laughs> so uh, uh, way to go, Marvin Miller, and uh, the MLB Players Association. Uh, they've they've certainly <laughs> made some strides. I'd be curious to see like taking this approach of first half and second half division winners applying it to every season in baseball somebody you know like somebody from uh, baseball prospectus could do a predict do predictive analytics to see like who would win you know okay. just be curious yeah. yeah it'd be curious to see who you know how it would have theoretically sure shaken out you sure know? <laughs> So are we letting a computer decide the game results, or do we have a 20-sided die? Yeah, I think you'd have to let a computer decide, yeah. Okay. Um, but you know what I mean? Just to, just if, like, if you took this this approach and applied it to other seasons. Like, it would be yeah. interesting. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, one, one place that they went wrong when the owners were negotiating this, figuring out the, the, how the postseason would work during the strike, is that, okay, so they do this in the minor leagues. They, they have the split season. Right. Um, I don't know if it's all the if it's all the minor leagues or just parts, uh, certain classes, but um, but there's incentive for the team to win that won the in the first half to win the second half. If the team that won the first half also wins the second half, then they get a buy. But mm. there was there wasn't that incentive for the. No, yeah, teams. it was like the first half teams that won basically could just lose or not right. not lose. They could rest like, their players. Yeah, yeah they could yeah. they could mail it in. Oh yeah, yeah totally. So it's completely fascinating to me in, in the history <laughs> yeah. of, of baseball that, that that this happened just like 35 years ago. Uh, I, it was controversial happens. at the time, and it would I, I feel like it would even generate more protests now. You know? Oh my god, yeah. With all of the yeah. social media, people would go crazy. And not to yeah. mention, they, they, when they started up again, they started with the All-Star game, even though it was in August. Yeah. Yeah. And so, as a side, as a side discussion here... Why did why did everybody come back to baseball in 1982? But it seems like in 95, 96, 97, 98, like in it seems like since the 94 strike, people didn't people weren't as quick to come back to baseball. I would argue in 98 that wouldn't be the case with the home run well, chase no, between no. McGuire. That, and that was the thing that saved baseball. Yeah, right. definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I yeah you're right, though. It dealt a blow, I think, certainly. But, uh, you know what I mean? It seems like within, you know, in 1982, boom, people were back and everybody was... I, maybe people were just ready to have a complete season again. And they were able to salvage the season still, you know, and, like, right. get it all done yeah. get it all done before November Good still, point. too. Even, I'll never yeah. forget. I wish I would have done this in 94. Like, we said the, the season in 94 ended in, what, like, August, right? Yeah, and uh, I remember in October of that year at Walmart's, you could buy a 1994 World Series baseball. Whoa! What? Like, like Walmart had gotten a hold of a batch of them and packaged them, and they came in a little box, and it was like, oh, unused ball from the 1994 Whoa. World Series that that never happened. So oh, I might, I might have to get on eBay and see if I can find one of those. Yeah, right. That was the year. Uh... Uh, Montreal had a really strong squad that yeah. year. Right, it was the well, year that they were supposed to win. That yeah. segues yeah. perfectly into the National League because the Expos in 1981 were freaking stacked. Yep. They had Gary Carter, Andre Dawson, Tim Raines, Tim Wallach, Terry Francona. They uh, they 
they almost beat the Dodgers. And I right. think if they would have beat the Dodgers, they probably would have won the World Series. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's kind of crazy to think about that. And uh, I think we need to force Montreal to take back the Expos. Personally, you know, I, it's like, yeah. no. You had one of the best logos in Major League Sports. You have to use it. I've never warmed up to the Nationals either, Levi. <laughs> <laughs> I just, take them back. Be the Expos Montreal, take them back. Yeah. Uh, hashtag Montreal take it back. So next up, the Dodgers, Fernando Mania strikes. Uh, basically, he had pitched a few games in 1980, I think. I think they had called him up and he had like a cup of coffee in 1980. But in 81, he won his first eight starts, which oh. for a rookie or anybody is, is pretty amazing. Um, five of those were shutouts. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it is. It's ridiculous. You won't have a pitcher pitching five shutouts in an entire season uh, anymore. No, no. And uh, the only player in history to win the Cy Young and the Rookie of the Year in the same season, obviously. Yeah. And uh, the Dodgers, though, it wasn't just Fernando. They were stacked, too. Uh, You had a rookie, Mike Sosha, Steve Garvey, Steve Sachs, Dusty Baker, Dave Stewart, a young Rick Sutcliffe even pitched for them. Um, am, I the, am I the only one who forgets that Dave Stewart ever pitched for anybody but the Oakland A's when he actually pitched right? for like five or six no, teams? Yeah, exactly. No, Dave Stewart. Will I had no idea be... that he made his he made his debut as early as '78. He pitched yeah, in like yeah. a like a game or two in '78. Yeah. go ahead, Lee. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. No, yeah. I agree. Dave, Dave Stewart will always be in green and yellow. Exactly, and uh. So uh, also in the National League that year, there were some stacked teams. Another one was the Phillies. The Phillies had Pete Rose, uh, Larry Boa, Gary Matthews, Ryan Sandberg. The last three guys I just said all were Cubs. Um, <laughs> Bob Boone. And then another Cub, future Cub, Keith Moreland was on that team. Mm-hmm. And uh, the man who won the National League MVP that year, Mike Schmidt, who was a perennial Cub killer. I remember as a kid, it was always like, oh, God, Mike Schmidt's up. Like, uh. yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, if Mike Schmidt, if he would have had maybe just a little bit not as good of a season, Fernando could have won the MVP, the Cy, and the Rookie of the Year. Um, yeah. Which would have been, yeah. uh, yeah. which would have been, you know, we people would be talking about him a lot more than they are. And people do talk about him still, but for a player to win the MVP, the rookie and the side, that would just be bonkers. Um, so it was, it was a good year for the national league, except for my team, the Cubs, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the national league was stacked. They and had go a lot figure, of great players. The team with the best record uh, didn't even make the playoffs. Right. The Reds. Yeah, right. Yeah. The Reds. Reds had more wins yeah, than anybody in baseball and they didn't even make the it playoffs. It didn't even make the playoffs. Yeah. Yeah. I'd assume the Reds probably still had some holdovers from the 70s teams, right? In 1981, probably. It was kind of the last hurrah. Yeah, probably had that core, a lot of, some of that core still. Concepcion, George Foster, Ken Griffey. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But they were all in their 30s. Was Johnny Bench still on the Reds in 1981? Yeah, yeah, he was. They moved him to third base. I was going to say, I thought he... Uh, First base. Or first first base. base, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he he played in just fifty two games in uh, that year, which was about half the season uh, that that year. Yeah. So uh, yeah, and and you know for the World Series, uh, I'll 
go ahead and um, uh, get the playoffs in the World Series. You know, we already talked a little bit about the unusual playoff structure of that year. Um, uh, and then, you know, you have these two iconic teams finally uh, meeting each other in the World Series, which I, I, I thought about this and then I can, you know, the, the deep dive into Wikipedia um, uh, proved it. Uh, 1981, you had, you know, L.A. and New York in a championship game, which you didn't have that again until the 2014 Stanley Cup, where you had, you know, mm-hmm. America's two largest markets meet in one of the four major sports championship games, you know? Yeah. And someone who doesn't follow hockey, I totally didn't know in 2014, <laughs> those teams, those teams met. So I was like, wow, gosh, that has been a while. 1981. Yeah. Cause I'm like, well, it certainly hasn't happened in baseball. Um, so yeah, that, that's pretty crazy. Um, so obviously it's, uh, you know, <laughs> the ratings would have been high in 1981. You know, I mean, you've, you've got, uh, these two, Two teams, both of them full full of stars, um, you know, and and representing uh, you know the two uh, the two largest markets. So certainly a lot of it was a really big marquee matchup uh, in the series that year. So maybe you know from a, a hype standpoint, maybe it was good that some of those other teams didn't you know didn't go as far, even though they may have been a little more deserving because you you know you got to have two of baseball's most iconic franchises meet in the world series. And th- that, that uh, helps yeah, bring I, your sport back from a strike. It does. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, but yeah, you know, it, it, a lot of it boiled down to, um, you know, to game six. Um, the, it's, it's important to mention that, you know, the Dodgers were the champs that year, um, but they lost the first two games on the road in New York and then ended up winning the next four. And I think they, uh, they they were behind in every series that year, I believe. They were behind in every series, yeah. And they, they were very resilient that year. Um, so, you uh, you know, over those six games, so the next four then, you have, um, you know, the pretty high-scoring affairs there in a couple of them. You know, you got game three, you got the Dodgers 5-4. You got, the, in game four, you got the Dodgers 8-7. to seven. So a lot of runs were scored then. Um, and then in game six, you know, there was kind of a controversial um, Bob Lemon, who was the Yankees manager at the time. Um, he uh, ended up um, in game six. Uh, it was kind of a controversial, you know, play. He ended up. Um, uh, let me see if I can find it here. It was a. Uh, yeah, ejected. right. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, you know, Greg Nettles uh, let off the inning with a double. Um, and then the guy for the, um, the Dodgers, uh, Hooten, you know, a guy that Bert Bert Hooten, yeah, yeah, who I have to admit, I didn't know much about because he was one of those guys that's not really of, you know, he, he'd retired by the time I, I, you know, all of us started really getting into baseball in the late eighties. He put together a pretty good career. Yeah. Bert Hooten did. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, quite a few wins, good, good record, good ERA. 150 wins, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Like 30 games over 500 or so, um, in his, you know, his composite record. Um, but yeah, so Hooten retires the next two guys. Um, he intentionally walks Larry Milbourne and then he faces Tommy John, uh, because there was no DH, you know, in, in the series at the, um, for that year. And because um, it, wasn't it then that they were still alternating? Yeah, whether right. or not they, were it, they would alternate by year. 
whether mm-hmm. or not they would have the DH weird. in the World Series. And that was the year they didn't. Yeah. Yeah, so it was weird. Um, so Lemon decides then to pinch it for for John, right? And Tommy John was pissed, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, his, the camera, if you watch it, it shows him pacing up and back, pacing up and down in the Yankees dugout, just kind of just pissed off and in disbelief. And then the pinch hitter, uh, Bobby Mercer, ends up flying out to end the inning. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Um, you know, and then George Frazier comes in and, you know, gives up an RBI single to Ron Say, one of the heroes of the series. And then Pedro Guerrero as well gets a triple. And then, you know, they just, that was it. So, um, um, and then George Frazier ended up losing three games in the world, all Ouch. three world series losses, um, three games of that series of the 1980 yeah, series. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah and, uh, you know, the Dodgers had, uh, you know, it was a good mixture of both teams actually were a good mixture of veterans and young talent. You know, I mean, you had, um, a lot of guys that we followed when we were, following baseball in the in the late 80s a lot of the guys were really just starting out you know they were rookies or only into their second or third year especially on the Dodgers you know you had um you know you had Mike Sosha you had Steve Sachs you had Mike Marshall um Pedro Guerrero um uh, gosh I've, Bob, there's, Welch. There's a, Bob Welch right Dave Stewart Steve um yeah. Steve Howe yeah uh just a a ton of um a ton of guys that you know would would later become stars. Um, so uh, on um, on the Dodgers and elsewhere. So uh, yeah, and you know then on the Yankees you had Willie Randolph just starting out. Uh, you had you know Dave Winfield was a superstar at that point. Um, uh, was Ricky Anderson Reggie was playing? in the end of his career. Reggie, yeah, was Ricky Anderson playing for the Yankees then? I don't think so. For the right? Yankees, no. No, he's probably on Oakland or I just. Believe so yeah. Yeah. Okay played the Yankees in the mid eighties. Um, so yeah, so it was, uh, it was, it was, it was certainly uh, a little bit of a clash of the Titans. And then it, obviously you had, you know, Steve Garvey who had a huge series as well. And Ron say too. So that Dodgers team was pretty stacked. Um, so even if the Reds had the best record, you know, it, I, I, the, the, the Dodgers didn't play that well, you know, in every series, but they played well enough to win. Yeah. So, I, I watched the last out of that game six on YouTube. By the way, you can watch the entire series on YouTube. It's all you can watch there. every game, full thing, yeah. every full game, um, every every game. Yeah, it's but awesome. that last out, it's in it's in Yankee Stadium, and you know Lasorda, you know they get the last out, and Lasorda's like running out, like you always yeah. you see that classic oh, yeah. shot of him running out with his arms up in the air, and and they're they're all you know jumping up and down on the mound, and then they do the wide shot you know, from the broadcast booth and people are just looting the field. Yeah. <laughs> New Yorkers running on the field to steal the bases and stuff. It's like, yeah, oh, New York. Cutting out little York, patches York of was, grass. Yeah. yeah. New York Seriously. was still a rough place in the early 80s, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Those Manhattan people running on the field weren't though. even in the stadium before the last out. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> but, but dude, that, that video you, you posted of uh, the Dodgers... Uh, singing, singing uh, we are the, are champ- the champions. Holy smokes, that's gold, man. That's yeah, gold. it is. It looked like the Oak Ridge Boys up there, man. <laughs> yeah, lots yeah. of choreography. Who was it? Yeah. It was Rick Monday and I think Ron um, Say. 
Uh, yeah, Ron Say, Jay Johnstone, and somebody else. I think, um, is Garvey in it? No. Or is he? I don't think Garvey was on there. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, but, oh man, we'll, we'll post that on the webpage. That's a, that's an amazing video. It's like right off, looks like it's right off the Barbara Mandrell show or something. And they're really <laughs> singing. Um, but, they are. And they, they aren't singing awfully, but they, they're <laughs> singing as if they rehearsed it. Like, they, oh, yeah. they really rehearsed it. Oh, yeah. and, but and they aren't like intentionally singing off key. They're singing like below. They aren't singing Freddie Mercury notes. They're singing like uh, two or three octaves below Freddie Mercury. <laughs> uh, but it's fascinating. Yeah, it was on Solid Gold, uh, the uh, the TV show. Oh, and, uh, is that one what of the it was? Gib- yeah, it was one of the Gibb brothers introducing them. Wow. <laughs> no time for losers. Yeah. <laughs> um, well. Lots of fun, guys. Um, the uh, 1981 in music and baseball. So if you like, uh, if you've got any good suggestions from music for that year, any baseball memories uh, you want to share. If, if you're a love child of Steve Garvey from his mini <laughs> hotel escapades that year. Hey, Levi, you were born in 1981, weren't you? Right. <laughs> I always thought I had a Garvey kind of. You had a DNA test lately, Levi, all right? <laughs> I thought I had a natural swing. Oh, <laughs> uh, Anywho. So you can check out everything um, you need to know about rock and roll Shinsu Chu at rockchu.com. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at rock in Chu. That's N as in Greg Nettles. Um, and then uh, also you please like us on Facebook and please, please subscribe to us on iTunes or YouTube and leave us feedback on the shows. Uh, I want to give everybody a quick note for our subscribers out there regarding the XML feed. Our XML feed will soon be changing. If you subscribe through iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, then your subscription feed should update automatically. If you subscribe through an app like Downcast or Pocket Cast, then you may need to update our feed to the new address, which is media.rockchew.com slash rockchew.xml. Uh, media.rockchew slash rockchew.xml. Um, and uh, that's posted on the website as well, so you can find that that URL there. Um, if you have any trouble, don't hesitate to contact us on Facebook, Twitter, or you can email tbolan at rockchew.com. Well, uh, it's been fun talking about 1981, guys. Um, I, I think it. I'm going to go go listen to some 1981 music before I go to bed. So anyway, sure. uh, until next time, uh, have a good night, and uh, we'll see you soon. Peace. <laughs>